we are in First Peter, and we finished chapter three last time, which leads us right on to chapter four. And I will tell you, we are also going to sort of cross back over to Colossians, which we did a few weeks ago, and we'll be in the end of Colossians 2. For those of you who are not doing this electronically and are doing this with the old technology of paper, you can put a finger in Colossians if you care. So where we were last time is we talked about baptism. We talked about Yeshua going down to the dead and coming up. And so now this chapter 4 starts with therefore. So you sort of need to remember what went before at the end of chapter 3. In chapter 3, it says in verse 18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patient waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Yeshua Messiah, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And we spent a fair amount of time talking about baptism, And here Peter refers back to the flood for his metaphor of baptism. Paul does the same thing, but refers to the exodus going through the Red Sea. Both Peter and Paul talk about historical events as being equivalent to baptism. And we talked about baptism then being a transition from the world of death into the world of life. So now, chapter 4 Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So what he's saying here is having transitioned from the world of death into the world of life, by being baptized into Yeshua's kingdom. Therefore, what you want to do is you want to live as if you were free of the world. Now, nobody is free of the world, at least not until we undergo physical death and are raised from the dead in his presence. So this is... I don't know how to say it without sounding cynical, but it is a, an exhortation, if you will, to change your attitude. He is saying it in a positive way. So he's saying it for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. He is saying that in an affirmative statement. In other words, you who have suffered in the flesh You have ceased from sin. Well, no, we haven't. So I am taking this, if you will, as an exhortation. And the idea there is to get your mind changed 
so that you're no longer ensnared with the passions of the world, but you have your mind focused on the things of Christ. The comment was that in previous chapters we have the concept of people suffering at the hands of either their neighbors or the secular authorities unjustly. In other words, they are walking according to Torah, they are living just lives, but because of their profession of Christianity or in Christ, or in some cases Judaism, because Jews get persecuted also. Although in this case, since he's writing to Messianic Jews, one of the sources of persecution very well could be their non-Messianic former brethren. But the point that you're making is having been persecuted and punished for your belief in Christ and having then stood up and taken that punishment even though you didn't deserve it and not recanted, you're saying that that experience then makes worldly temptation somewhat less attractive to you. Again, the comment was it strengthens you and it toughens your armor. <laughs> there was a, an expression that used to be fairly current when I was a much younger man called a significant emotional experience. And in the Army, we used to periodically give people a significant emotional experience to get their heads right. It was a snarky kind of thing we used to say. But one of the things that is true is when someone does get a significant emotional experience like 39 lashes or being stoned and raised from the dead or any of those kinds of things, it definitely does concentrate the mind. And it certainly has the potential to be transformative. That's why I say I'm not really arguing with you, but when we get down to chapter 4, I see Peter as saying this in a didactic way you have ceased from sin. Well, I'm sorry I regard that as sort of as biblical hyperbole because all of us periodically fall from grace. In fact, there's a, a rabbinic story along those same lines. A young man become very devout and spends all of his time studying Torah and stuff like that and he goes to his mentor, who's a much older rabbi, and say, Rabbi, I think I've got this. I mean, I ceased to look at women and all that kind of stuff. And his old friend looked at him and said, I think you need to see a doctor, because I am older than you are, and I still look at them. <laughs> so I take your point, which is a significant emotional event can concentrate the mind and set you on a new path. I, th I think that's absolutely correct. But I also think that what is being said here in chapter 4 is a little bit hyperbolic because even those who have changed their ways and have put their foot on the right path, their eyes still stray. And one of the things that Peter says, and Paul also says the same thing, is when you are reviled and cursed for your belief, and you are punished for your belief, assuming you're not being punished for something you actually did, don't answer with a reviling accusation and don't curse. 
blessed instead of cursed. So that's certainly consistent. And in light of what Tom said, the idea of having gone through a physical trauma, what he's saying here is you want to arm yourself with the same way of thinking as Christ had, but the grammar here is arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Okay, cool, got that, I can do that. I can change my attitude. But whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That, I am suggesting, is encouraging hyperbole, bucking you up, encouraging you to do the right thing. But I don't know that it is possible to live the rest of your life in the flesh, which is what he's talking about. So for the rest of your life, until you leave the flesh, you are without sin. And that's why I say I read that as encouragement. In other words, he's saying, you've changed your mind, you've changed kingdoms, start thinking like Christ, and don't sin. But as I say, the way he has written it is an emphatic positive, you have ceased from sin, which I'm suggesting is by way of encouragement. Again, a rabbinic perspective is in the new heaven and the new earth, you will no longer have free will because it doesn't serve any purpose. Having made it into the new heaven and the new earth, your free will has served its purpose, which is to tempt you and test you and try you, make you suffer in the flesh, all of those things. And what that does is it allows you to choose God in their case, or Yeshua in our case, as a true choice. It's a real choice with real consequences. So your free will gives you the ability to make that choice. But once you've made it, and you're chosen God, and you were in the new heaven and the new earth, then that faculty is no longer useful because you're not being tried anymore. That's rabbinic. That is not Christian. But the idea that once you're in the new heaven and the new earth, the purpose of free will has served its purpose, so it doesn't have any use anymore, and it goes away because the Torah is written on your heart, and you naturally do the things that are pleasing to God. The Christian perspective is once you have made the choice to go with God, then you are going to be in the new heaven and the new earth. And his sacrifice covers any sins you commit thereafter. And I am also of the opinion that if you get into the kingdom of God by your own free will, you can leave by your own free will. A Calvinist does not believe that. He believes that once you're in, you're there forever. So from the Christian perspective, once you have changed kingdoms, so long as you maintain your membership in that kingdom, his blood covers any sins that you may subsequently commit. But the idea that the ability to choose, which is what your free will gives you, ceases to be of value in the new heaven and the new earth is a rabbinic idea. It is not a Christian idea. 
I don't know what Christian theology believes about free will after the resurrection. Just don't know the answer to that. Now, and don't get me wrong, New Testament also says that you will be judged based on your works. So your works in Christianity are very important because they determine where you are in the new heaven and the new earth and all that kind of stuff. But what they don't determine is whether you get in at all. The comment was that a component of suffering is ceasing from sin because sin is fun. Sin is attractive. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. The comment was that when you change sides, you put your trust in God. And one of the things that you can trust him for, because it says all sorts of places in Scripture, is vengeance is mine. So, in fact, if there's vengeance to be taken, that he will do it, and you can trust in that. And the other thing that Scripture says is that human anger doesn't work good. So the idea of retaliation and so forth is doubly forbidden. And you just trust that God will make it all right, which I'm sure he will. All right, let's start again with four here and rip on through to verse three. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So what he's saying is, you live in a Gentile community. And what you don't want to do is you don't want to engage in the same practices that the Gentiles engage in. Now there's two components to that. Remember the addressees here are Hebrews. So for a Hebrew who believes in God to engage in those same practices is every bit as forbidden as it would be for a Christian. That sort of thing one. Thing two is, assuming that the Hebrews he's writing to are the remnant of the northern kingdom that was taken out by the Assyrians in 700-odd B.C., the reason that they got sent into exile is because they were doing that stuff. So living among the Gentiles who are doing that stuff, it isn't necessarily clear that Hebrews would not also be doing the same thing. There are sort of two senses of that passage. One is having come out of whatever you were in and into Christ, you can't do that stuff anymore. The other is, if you were actually good Jews, you wouldn't have been doing it anyway, but you are living among Gentiles who do behave that way. And certainly there's always a temptation, hence the Midianite women that came into the camp. I mean, that temptation has always existed. And if you read the Bible, very often Israel yields to that temptation. So it's entirely possible that coming out of Judaism per se 
and into Christianity may have also involved coming out of pagan behavior into Christianity. And by the way, if you read Jeremiah and Isaiah, one of the things that both of them say is, you guys are honoring me with the form of worship that I have commanded. You're still doing the sacrifices, you still got the temple, you're still doing all that stuff, but you have drifted off into pagan practices and you are no longer honoring me as God, even though you know the scriptures. So, remember I said at the beginning of this study, Peter assumes that his audience knows Torah. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're walking in Torah, because before the exile of both kingdoms, they were doing the form, which means that they had the book, they knew what it said, they knew how to do all of those things, but they weren't, in fact, on God's side, they were on their own side, and so God finally sanded them off. So it isn't real clear what relationship his audience used to have with Gentile pagan practices. They could have been good Jews, in which case they wouldn't have been doing any of this anyway, and their neighbors were, or they could have been what a Baptist would call backslidden. In fact, this is a good time to swing over to Colossians. And you remember we did Colossians several weeks ago, and I'm going to pick it up in 2.12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So again, we're talking about baptism, and we're talking about raising from the dead, which we also talked about in 1 Peter 3. So this is very much a parallel argument to what we're just doing going through in 1 Peter. And by the way, Paul is writing to Gentiles where Peter is writing to Hebrews. So the audience is different. So he talks about them being raised from the dead. And verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And you remember back in chapter 3 of 1 Peter, Yeshua went down and he preached to the spirits that were in prison. We talked about that last time. So these are very much parallel arguments. And we talked last time, we used the example of a speeding ticket. And if you get caught for speeding, your speeding ticket is nailed to the cross. The law against speeding has not been repealed. That's still a valid law. It's only your ticket that gets nailed to the cross, not the law itself. And there are lots of Christian preachers that don't understand that. So anyway, he disarmed the rules and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And at the end of 1 Peter 3, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. So again, you see that they're very much parallel arguments. So verse 16 now. I'm in Colossians 2.16. Therefore, 
Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by the sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. What he is talking about here are pagan rituals. Jews do not buy asceticism. It's not part of Judaism. And worship of angels and all that kind of stuff. So what he's talking about is Gentiles who have come out of paganism and their pagan friends are giving them a hard time because of their not doing this stuff anymore. We don't do Halloween, we don't do Easter, all those things, and you will get grief from your Sunday Christian friends for not doing it, for not eating bacon, all that stuff. So what Paul is talking about is Gentiles who used to be pagans, who came out of paganism and are being harassed by their former pagan friends. Peter is talking to Hebrews who may or may not have come out of pagan practices but live in a pagan nation and he's saying to them do not partake in pagan practices. They're very much parallel which is why it's useful to read them together. Two different audiences, two different cities, etc., but the same argument is being made in both cases. And what I will suggest to you is as you read these two side by side, where one says something in a way that isn't obvious to you, the other may say it in a way that clarifies it. Back now to 1 Peter. And I'm in chapter 4, verse 4. And let me pick it up, verse 3, and we'll get a run at it. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Notice that he's saying that your Gentile friends who do this stuff are surprised that you no longer join them. And again, that's exactly what Paul is saying in Colossians. The Gentile new Christians are being harassed by their former pagan friends for not doing this stuff. And similarly, the Hebrews here are being harassed or looked upon with amazement, if you will, if they don't take advantage of all of the stuff that the temple has to offer, the pagan temple. And these people who are harassing them will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, that's Yeshua, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So remember we had Yeshua in chapter 3 went down in the spirit and preached to the spirits who were in prison. 
So what he's saying there is he went down there and he preached the gospel. And what I believe is the case is he said, all right, now that you know the truth, what are you going to do with it? Again, the comment was, so we do get a second chance after death. I would suggest you don't count on that. Uh, (laughs) And the reason I say that is this was written 2,000 years ago. And what is not clear is context here. So, for example, it is entirely possible to read that as he goes down to everybody who lived prior to the crucifixion who didn't have the benefit of knowing the gospel and gives them a choice. That is one way to read it. Another way to read it, which is less solid, is that everybody gets a chance. Because there are people in the world today who die without ever having heard the gospel. And certainly God is nothing if not consistent. So if people who died before the crucifixion are given an opportunity, certainly those who die never hearing it would be. That would seem logical to me doesn't mean it's right, it just means it seems logical to me. As I am fond of saying, God is not going to ask me for my opinion when he makes those decisions. People who have heard and rejected the gospel are a different breed of cat. And I have no idea how that's going to be handled. One of the things that I have said in the past is, of course, we had the great white throne judgment, which... Yeshua will judge everybody, everybody, to include his own. And the basis for judgment will be on your deeds. Books will be open, and you'll be judged based on what you did in the flesh. And another book will be opened, which is the Lamb's Book of Life. And those who are in the Lamb's Book of Life will be forgiven for all of the things that they did in the flesh. Those are the ones who will make it past the lake of fire into the new heaven and the new earth. Now, what is not clear at all is whether or not the court clerk at the great white throne is going to be authorized to add anybody to the book. So, as you come before the great white throne, if you are not in the book, do you have the opportunity then throw yourself on the mercy of the court, if you will, and say, I repent. I just don't know the answer to that. You'll have Christian preachers that will say with great certainty one way or the other what they think is going to happen, but I certainly don't know. But everybody is going to be judged for what they did. That's pretty clear. And one of the points that Paul makes is those who are in Messiah will have their deeds tested by fire and a lot of them are going to show up smelling of smoke with no works to recommend them but they will be in the new heaven and the new earth. All the way down to verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. For the sake of your prayers. 
Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Yeshua Messiah, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Back up to verse 7, having read all of that. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Remember, we have talked about that before, where, for example, a husband who does not treat his family well will have his prayers hindered. So this idea of your behavior determining whether God listens to your prayers or not is, it's a very Jewish thing. You know, rabbis still teach that. The other one is God hears the prayers of the righteous and ignores the prayers of the wicked. So the idea here is obviously Pay attention to your behavior because your behavior determines how God pays attention to you. Down to verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So what we were just talking about, your deeds, our deeds, will be judged. And the comforting thing about being in Yeshua is at the end of the judgment, if he doesn't find anything terribly redeeming about you, you may smell of smoke, but you will not be cast into the lake of fire. That's different for Christians than it is for Hebrews or pagans. Difference in theology. And again, the whole point of this is as you are living in this world, this is a place that is difficult by design. It's not an accident that the place is so difficult. And it's designed to refine people. And the trials that you go through are designed to refine and develop character and all that kind of stuff. And I will tell you with absolute certainty, no one likes to have his character developed. Nobody. You may be happy with it after the fact, but while your character is being developed, it is not pleasant. And then again, the idea of judgment will begin in the household of God. For it is a time for judgment to begin in the household of God, and if it begins with us, 
what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Obviously, the idea is it is going to happen to you. You are going to go through trials and tests and suffering and all that kind of stuff. I don't know how many times you have heard people who are going through a difficult time say, Why me? Right? And the answer to that is, Why not you? One of the things my dad said, being hyperbolic and a tough guy, I think, is I've done things I don't ever expect to be forgiven for. And I just looked at him and said, what makes you so special? Great question. The question was, why does God refine our character? And the only answer I can come up with, do with this whatever you like, is there's going to be stuff in the world to come that is going to require us to need it. This is the first stage of your life. Your first stage of your life begins with physical birth and goes to physical death. That is stage one of your life. Stage two of your life is in the world to come. And one of the things that we know, for example, is God is a man of war. And he is dealing with a rebellion in heaven. I mean, what made them think that they could get away with it? But they thought so. So the idea of the new heaven and the new earth being a place where we all just sit around on our blessed assurance and sing hymns, I don't believe is sound. I believe that your character is being developed because you will have use of it in the world to come. That's Johnnyology, by the way. That is not the sayest God. You know, having spent most of my adult life in the Army, either being trained or training people, and being trained or training people is unpleasant to everybody, but the whole point is to make the people who are being trained tough and skillful. I don't remember some historian was talking about the Roman army. And he said that the Roman army training is so tough and so brutal that their battles are simply like bloody training exercises. And that's the purpose of training is so that when you get into the real deal, you prevail. As I say, it seems to me that one of the things that is happening here is we are being trained. For what? I don't know don't know the answer to that. We are not simply being trained for the world to come. The training that we undergo here is useful for the rest of our life in the flesh. So it is not either or, it is and both.